Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 3. Today I'm talking to an old friend, Nina G. She's a comedian in the Bay Area here, and she's uh, written a few books um, as well. Her book, Stutter Interrupted, came out a few years back, uh, and it was a huge hit uh, and had a lot of critical acclaim. And also, um, she's been featured on NPR's 51%, BBC's Ouch, Psychology Today, TEDx, uh, multiple daytime talk shows, and even Howard Stern. Uh, She's been all over the place. She's even been on the Stuttering John podcast. Um, You may have seen her perform at many local Bay Area um, comedy shows. Um, She's been all over the place here in the Bay Area. She's just a wonderful guest, and I always love talking to her. So without further ado, I'm going to go right to the interview. And here we go with Nina G., a, and she's going to be talking about her new book, which is coming out on Valentine's Day, called Bay Area Stand-Up Comedy. It's a history going back pretty far of the Bay Area stand-up history. And on we go. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have my old friend Nina G on the podcast with me today to talk about her brand new book. And we're going to talk about her previous book as well. Nina, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. Always good to see you and work with you, Dean. Always good to see you too. So let's talk about Bay Area stand-up comedy, this book that you have come out. I've been hearing you talk about it for the past couple of years. I've been really excited. Tell me about the book. So it comes out February 14th. I'm writing it with with OJ Patterson, who's an old comedy friend of mine. And we did a book that has a ton of pictures. It's like 120 pictures on the history of Bay Area comedy. The first thing we talk about, it, the first stand-up thing that, that we talk about in the, in the book is Ar- Artemis Ward, who played in San Francisco in the 1860s. And he was wow. a good friend. I know, it goes back that far. Holy crap. Um, I know. And, and l- l- luckily, Rich Scheidner, who I'm sure you knew back in the day, um, he is friendly with me. I don't want to say a friend, but like Facebook friends and, and comedy friends. He is a comedy historian, too, and he is an expert on uh, Artemis Ward. So so he ha- helped me out on this information. But Artemis was also friends with Mark Twain. And the first time that Mark Twain ever did anything that resembled stand-up was in San Francisco. So his first time was in San Francisco. And that is kind of a theme of the book is that a lot of comics developed their voice. And the first time that they ever headlined was in San Francisco. So people like Robin Williams, of course, uh, but you know, just like Dana Carvey and Paula Poundstone and Allie Wong. And like, just you go on and on and on um, the Bay area in general, but San Francisco specifically really had a big impact on comedy. And my, and my thesis basically is everything good in comedy is because of San Francisco, including the brick wall, because we can claim that the brick wall happened at the hungry eye first. So anyway, I don't know what you asked me, but uh, I kind of- I know you're great. No, so, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the hungry eye because um, I had seen it referenced on Miss Maisel 
And I think a lot of people did too, and maybe younger people as well. And I know I've heard about it in movies and stuff. I, I swear I, there was a Jerry Lewis film that referenced it. Mm. Um, I mean, San Francisco really does, like you said, have like a huge you know, impact on the comedy scene. And you know, it, it's big. Was it like, did people come here to kind of get famous? You know, I, I don't know if it's to get famous, but I think the the way that San Francisco, no, I don't think it's to get famous, but it's the next step before you get famous. Okay. Um, so San Francisco's always been great because it's removed from the entertainment industry. Right. So you mess up in LA or in New York, everybody knows. You right. mess up in san francisco or you mess up in oakland it doesn't get back to the entertainment industry so that's why it's a great place to develop yourself as, as a comic and like in the 80s there's this big influx of boston comics who you know got tired of fighting with the boston audiences and so they came out here and like and those are like the dana gould's apollo poundstones and kevin meanies like just it went on and on now is it because of that you're, you're a comedian do you think it's more laid back here do you think it's it's kind of a better place to be a stand-up comedian or do you think it's about the same as los angeles I, I, I think it's way, way, way better because I think there's more opportunities for, for stage time. There's more opportunities for creativity. Uh, and the thing that San Francisco is known for in its style of stand-up is like kind of a combination of the absurd and the improvisational. And you see both of that in Robin Williams. Um, Mort Saul was the first one in San Francisco to really put like it, 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 improvisational stand up, meaning that not like, oh, someone get, give me a, a job and, and an animal and I'm gonna do a skit. No, it's more of just going off the cuff and talking and going there. Um, but in the 70s, it got more absurd. And that style, I think, still permeates, although I'd like to see more of it. Uh, but San Francisco and the Bay Area is basically the next stop. So people are able to get that stage time in. They're also able, because there's like a hundred mile radius of towns and cities that people can play. So uh, San Francisco Comic can go up to Santa Cruz and Modesto and right. to Sacramento so that they can really um, st stretch themselves so it's just not all Bart and Muni jokes. Now, on the cover of the book was one of my favorite comedians, um, Phyllis Diller, and she's local. I think she's from actually uh, Dublin or Pleasanton. Alameda. 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 Oh my God. I'm okay. Okay. Generation Alamedian. So it's very important that you get that right. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Um, and, and, and she's not from there, but she lived there, and that's where she started. Now, she was a, um, one of the first female comedians to get big in the United States. 
and I, I don't want to, I won't mention Maisel again, but they kind of touch on what it was like to be a female comedian back in the late fifties, early sixties. Did, did, um, were there other comedians that, that were from here that were female that were breaking ground here? Was this kind of like a launch pad for people, for women comedians? I mean, I think she was the first one to break through in a mainstream steady way. Like you had moms, Mabley, who was in the Chitlin circuit yeah. and had been killing it for years, but she didn't get on, onto mainstream TV until after Phyllis Diller. And Diller broke through in like the late 50s. And um, so she's just very interesting because also like, she got into it a little bit later and like her first paying gig, well, her first paying gig, gig, she did a party and she got a live turkey that they gave her on a string, like like they had her have the turkey on a leash and she walked it home to, to her home um, in the projects of uh, Alameda where they lived and she tied it up and the turkey got free and then and then her neighbors found it it was like oh this must belong to the, the, the <laughs> dillers <laughs> oh my god yeah and so they're like um you we know that you and your husband because your husband's kind of useless we know that you can't butcher it so we will but we get to take half of your turkey so her first payment was half a turkey oh my uh, god <laughs> and this is the stuff that i love this all happened in alameda in a housing project um and so then but she eventually went to she eventually started and she was inspired by a woman who was performing at the purple onion and she just happened to meet this woman's acting coach at a jazz club and so that's when they started to develop the act um but in terms of other female comics i mean who had developed the, themselves in, in san francisco there there were lots of them i mean ali wong i think is one of the prime examples now right. um chelsea peretti who is from oakland um, so, you know, there are, are, are current ones too, but I think the one that I really, that really left an impression on me, which like, I am very much a snob when it comes to stand up. It's like, oh, improv isn't stand up, but this group called Femprov, which started in the very, 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 very late seventies had a major impact on San Francisco comedy in part because they started Cobb's Pub. Which oh yeah. Cobb's Comedy Club. And so Femprov like, like went to the owner of Cobb's Pub and was like, let's make this into a comedy club. And the, and the women set the stage they were the opening night act and eventually people kind of 
uh, forgot the it, it, it's a root of that, but um, I, I was really happy to capture that part part in the book too. You must have had access to some amazing research uh, resources. What were you able to uh, get? What kind of gold mines were you able to tap here? Okay, well, very few people, because they are younger, will understand why I almost cry when I talk about this, but you will understand. I got to talk to Don Novello, who plays- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Carducci. So I talked to him for like an hour and like, I know, I know. Dean has his mouth open because he knows how important. And like, I am an Italian American Catholic. Like I believed in him longer than the Easter bunny and Santa Claus. Like, like I, I didn't know Father Guido Sarducci uh, wasn't a real priest until I was like yeah. 10. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of people thought he was, he kept trying to tell, I'm not actually this person. <laughs> but, but he also said that like, like he had, had told me that he didn't understand people like the unknown co comic who would always say, this guy known as the unknown comic like like they always wanted their name in there he really liked kind of embodying the character uh and so it was just it was so cool to talk to him and hear how that character was developed in san francisco and like the cape the 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 the, the Daddy war that was later confiscated in the 1980s at oh my god vatican and he eventually got it back but he was arrested at the vatican for impersonating a priest <laughs> that's awesome i know right and so that same cape was bought at a saint vincent saint vincent de paul's in san rafael for seven dollars and 50 cents so like for me to know like oh that street over there is where he bought his cape very <laughs> exciting for someone like me and then also like i find it very ironic that not only was there like this divine intervention this uh, spiritual intervention of it being a saint vincent's but then he developed his act at the intercessor session coffee house which was like kind of the like the grittier place to do comedy where like people could really develop themselves and it was a bunch of hippies in there um but but he developed that character at the intersection which was a ministry in the basement of a church <laughs> that's beautiful is that beautiful? I love him. He's so funny. And I loved his uh, Laszlo Toth um, series. Yes. And I have this book, which maybe I'll show you after the thing. He did this book of, it's like a, a yearbook, but it's all sheep. So it's like a sheep high school. <laughs> Just the weirdest, most absurd thing. I and what it. was really cool about, because there's a, probably about 15 or, oral hi histories that me and uh, OJ took. 
um, which, you know, you don't get like the full thing in there, but you get snippets. You can hear the comics, comedy voice in how they talk. So someone like Stephen Pearl, who is a one liner guy, he would talk and talk and talk, but then like you would just get this really, really great little sentence and I would insert that in the book. And for someone like Novello, it was just like an absurd little weird sentence that just worked great in the text. So I was really happy to get those, to have comics lend me not only their histories, but also their comic voice. Now, have you had any feedback from the comedy kind of community about what you're doing and like maybe kind of a sense of appreciation for it? Because I don't think we always have a lot of good records of this. I think you've found doing your research, haven't you, that this has been kind of hard to find? Yeah, you know, and it's it's weird because like people don't appreciate comedy as an art form and that includes stand-up comics. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> I was like, yeah, how are people going to appreciate you if you don't appreciate your past? So um, yeah, no, people are very excited about it, especially the people from like the eighties boom who, uh, who like, there's not, there's never been one book on San Francisco comedy. So this right. is like the first one at, that's like encompasses a lot. And like, it's very much a primer. Like this is the first book and like every single chapter should be a 400 page book. Um, but there was a response at first from some of the older comics that was like, oh yes, people have been trying to write this, this book for years and it's just impossible. <laughs> uh, it's not, you <laughs> kind of pick and choose. Like in, and that's where Rich Scheidner, um, who, who did, I, I recently saw his one person show on the history of standup. He states that a history of stand-up is just that one history of stand-up because there's so many ways that you can go. So, uh, you know, this is one story. And in the book, I say, you should go ahead and write your own book because there's lots of ways that you could go with this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, um, for our listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background? Because um, you cover a lot of diverse areas. Like you're, all, you're a stand-up comedian, but you also work in different fields as well. Yeah, so um, yes, I do comedy, but I'm also a counselor at a community co college and I have my do doctorate 
in psychology. Um, I came to comedy 12, almost 12 ye years ago. And that was um, after like, cause when I was a kid, my dream was to be a, a comic and I would write m m material and I would read about it. Like I was obsessed with, like this book is a long freaking time coming. Like this is a, a life's work um, that I just did during the pandemic with, with my friend who's also obsessed. Um, but my dream to be a stand-up died when I was 17 because I was like, I, I, I stutter and this isn't gonna happen. I've never seen anybody do stand-up who stutters, so I'm done. Um, but it wasn't until after I went to a conference for people who stutter that I was like, okay, I, I came back and I was like 35 at the time. And I was like, okay, I, I can see where I have been not engaging in my full self and that I have kind of let the stuttering or the stigma that I placed uh, on stuttering that I kind of put that in the forefront and how much it had held me back in relationships and jobs and so many things. So when I came back from that conference, I made a number of changes in my life. And six months after that conference, I, uh, I started comedy, which now it's been almost 12 years. Now, I wanna ask you about your first gig. I know you talked about this in your first book, Stutter Interrupted but um, your first gig was um, pretty palpable for you. Can you tell our listeners about that? I mean, you know, it was, I, I like went, I, I, I dressed the way that I thought a female comic would dress. Like, and I know for, for you, that means sh shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah. And, and a <laughs> not like that. Uh, <laughs> not not so 80s um but you know I had like wedge he heels and jeans and a shirt um and I performed and I got laughs and um and like initially when I started doing comedy I was kind of like people are laughing at my stuttering jokes do they stutter because like I couldn't imagine people who didn't stutter re relating and I was like oh no they relate to it because Hopefully it's funny. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times people will say that the fastest connection between two, two people is humor and, and laughter. And so going into comedy as a disability advocate, um, I really tried to bring that, be, and, and that being influenced by a lot of African-American comics and especially someone like Dick Gregory, who blended that activism and 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 stand up and always stayed true to to the activism. Now you touched on something that I made me think of uh, something very topical. For a lot of us, comedy is this weird kind of litmus thing where it identifies us or we identify with it. So, like I know in my household, comedy can almost be something that causes arguments because. My kids may listen to comedians I don't necessarily care for or object to for various reasons, and they might not like something I listen to because they might think it's boring because I'm older and I have a weird sense of humor. So do you find that like it could be 
you said like, cause people can often be brought together by comedy. Do you find it can often be, especially these days in the days of social media, it can be like polarizing and kind of cause conflict maybe even? Yeah, yes. But I think for people who, for the comic who is talking to that audience, there is a connection there. But also if you think about it, like when Bill Hicks would piss off an audience, he was connecting with that audience as well. <laughs> so like yeah. th there is the antagonizing of the audience, which is also connecting. So that's very, that, that's a very interesting way to lo lo look at it too. Now you like a comedian, that, like there were comedians in the past, like Andy Kaufman, who had a different take on it, who would kind of kind of work against like stretching the minds of the audience, maybe doing a piece that was more art sometimes. But you like a comedian, Brother Theodore. What is his, what would you call his type of comedy? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, dark, dark <laughs> as hell. I, I, I don't know if I can say the F word here. Um, but to me, he is so interesting because he totally antagonizes pe people. And also his background, I don't know if you know his background. Okay, so he was super rich back in, in Germany from a Jewish family. His, his family owned the equivalent to Vogue there. Right. And like, he was just gonna be like a playboy. He was just gonna like play chess and date w women. And then the Holocaust, Right. Or, you know, Hitler happened. His family was totally uh, uh, obliterated. He was in a concentration camp and the Nazis said, you have to sign everything over in order to live. So he signed his entire fortune over. Then his mom may have had an affair with uh, Albert Einstein who got him to France. Then oh, wow. he was in France. He got kicked out of France for for being a chess hu hustler. Oh wow! <laughs> and then he moved to America, where he was a janitor at Stanford, did not know English, and then eventually found his way to performance art in New York, um, where he did a show. Not 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 nightly at this little black box theater and um you know in his stuff like his stuff is so dark and when you hear it you're like this is really gross and kind of weird and what the hell is this but when you look at his background like his parents killing each other in this one bit he has and then he eats the oil that was made from his parents' death. Like his, like he, he ingests the oil. Nothing compared to his background and the traumas that, and the traumas that, 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 that he experienced. So like, I just, like he's so funny. He's so weird. And the dynamic between him and Letterman was always a thing like I, and I was, you know, I was a, a, a dyslexic, stuttering kid in Catholic school 
and I would go through the TV guide and see when he was going to be on Le Le Letterman so that I could take a nap in the afternoon so I would be awake. Um, so like he spoke to me when I was a kid and, and, and he still does. That's awesome. I am um, trying to think. I am. Um, it's funny because so many comedians were able to use comedy to protest and like to, to, to like during the 60s, the Smothers Brothers, I think, had a trouble with the networks. Who because, are from the Bay or they developed in the Bay. Yeah. And they were able, a lot of comedi comedians were protesting the war, protesting all kinds of things. Lenny Bruce was protesting a lot of social things. And now we've gone weirdly where I think Fox tried to make their own Saturday Night Live where they had like conservative comedians and it didn't quite take off. I think it kind of stunk the room up. Did you hear about that? I didn't hear about that. But yeah, I mean, it, so what, what I think personally, which is good going on, is that comics have stretched the free speech laws right. in this country and they continue to in, in places like Canada. But we've always had free speech that that has that comics have had to have challenge. And in fact, Le, 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 Lenny Bruce's first case was in San Francisco, and it was for saying three things that I won't get into. Um, but the fact that it was said in North Beach, in San Francisco, next to a strip club, and down the street from for 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 Fermanghetti and, and and City Lights books that had published the Hal who also faced an obscenity trial because yeah. of all that it was like oh the community standard of North Beach is such that like yeah this is not obscene this is like run of the mill yeah. um and so, you know, like it's all of that work in a legal sense has led us to this point where the government is going to tell us what we can and can't say. So I kind of feel the culture is telling us that. Yeah. Um, and so like community standards within the culture are coming up. And so I, I, I think that's kind of what is pushing some of the, I don't know if you, it's a PC culture and a cancel culture, but that's also something we've always had. I mean, ask right. that, 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 that ER buckle about be, being canceled. Yeah. I always, I always laugh about that. You're exactly right. I mean, we've had cancel culture forever. This is nothing new. Although I think in, it was, I mean, you get blocked on social media, but in the past, they would arrest you. So, I mean, right, yeah, no, it's a different kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Not so bad now. And, and then also, I think that our politicians are saying crazy stuff that the comics sh should be saying, but they don't have the consequences that the comics have. So, I, I, I also kind of feel like we're exerting some control over comedy because we can't. Uh, exerted over politics yeah and it's weird because like i mean people can say so much now and i remember it's funny because we look at cases like you mentioned with lenny bruce where he was getting jailed for obscenity like literally going to jail 
I think young kids can't even conceive of that nowadays. But he kind of did it. He did it for their sins. <laughs> yeah. No, he was our martyr. So. Yeah. I. I. Um. Yeah. He's uh showing up so much more. I think there's been a resurgence in interest in him. For our folks that are not aware of your first book, I wanted to have you uh, talk about a little bit about Stuttered Interrupted. Can you tell our listeners about a little bit about your first book? Sure. It's just my j- journey into so stuttering and, and stand-up. So it has um, a lot of stories from my childhood, from my adulthood, just a lot on what it's like to be a person who stutters and that one piece about that journey into self-acceptance and finding community, which led me to my first love of comedy, which I had since I was a a little kid. Can you tell us about some of your favorite comedians? Oh my God, there's so many. I mean, you know, like, I think as a woman, like, okay, no, okay, no, I, I will start with this because I'm looking at it right here. It, it's my whole k- k- kitchen is k- comedy. So I have a Lenny Bruce picture in back of me. I have five albums, six albums on my wall here um, that are like some of my, you know, like some of the ones that I think are the most important, like Dick Gregory, the Smothers Brothers at the Purple Onion, um, and my Edith Ann. And so, okay, so um, Lily Tomlin, I I found her when I was a kid and she had had her Edith Ann. character and in second grade I made a hand puppet at school and I named it Edith Ann and um and then I always kept it it was one of my favorite things and then I met Lily Tomlin and she signed it so I have it signed and it's right there in my kitchen um but also the thing that I was first looking at was my autographed picture from Emo Phillips that I got when I was 13. Oh, so lucky. I know, right? I and love him. <laughs> because that was the first fan letter that, that I ever wrote. And he sent that back. It was very special. And since then, like whenever he's in town, I will go and see him. And he is well aware of me because every time that I see him, I will ask him like, like, okay, I'm going to ask him one thing and then I won't bu- bug him anymore, but I'm going to ask him about religion. I'm going to ask him about this, you know, about his development on this. Um, and so he's just been very sweet whenever I've met, met, met him. And in fact, right before the pandemic happened, it's at like March 5th week, all the shows closed, especially the big shows, he was at the Sacramento punchline and I drove Ooh. there from, from Oakland and he was the last like real comic I saw before the quarantine. And I was like, who better to see in the apocalypse other than e- emo? So I stayed for two of his shows. That's a good choice. I would, I have never seen emo, 
I've always oh, wanted to. You have to. Next I have time to. he's in town, you have to come with me. I will. I will. I promise. I just, I love him. I love, I like, you ever notice? I, how's it? <laughs> <laughs> I love his voice. Yeah. No. I, and when I was a kid, I was like, maybe emo and bobcat stutter and they talk that way and maybe i should do something like that so i'm fluent so yeah that's big they had a big impression <laughs> i love bobcat too and it's funny because i had only seen like his comedy act and then i got to see him interviewed where he'd be very serious and i'm like i was even i think i really fell in love with him then because he's so brilliant and his writing for movies is just so good He's such Shakes a good writer. Clown. You gotta yeah. love Shakes the Clown. Yeah. <laughs> he's great. I mean, yeah, he's just so wonderful. I love him so much. You, I like, because you got a really diverse palette of people you like. You're all over the map. I think people look at me and they can pretty much tell, oh, you must be a Bob Newhart fan. <laughs> <laughs> the button down comic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you, what was your first comedy album that you had? Well, the first album that I ever, ever bought with my own money was Steve Martin, the oh. Brothers album. Yes. Um, which was comedy on one side and banjo on the other. So I was a little disappointed by that. I wanted all comedy. Um, but that was my first album that I ever bought. Um, and, you know, finding Steve Martin when I was four was like kind of the thing that really le left an impression. Did you ever do the thing like we would invite friends over? I, I didn't always have friends. so it was, it was a rare occurrence, but I would <laughs> invite kids over after school and we would sit and get some Kool-Aid and listen to comedy albums. We listened to Bill Cosby. We would listen to, uh, you know, Steve Martin, of course, like you said, and it was just so fun to listen to this stuff. My, my father had some old ones and we didn't know what they were, what the references were. So it was really weird. And we almost died. We were listening to one. It was Jackie Gleason doing crazy Guggenheim. I still have this. In fact, <laughs> it was looking at me this morning from the bottom of the record rack when I was going to work this morning, I was laughing because it's such a weird image, but we didn't know what crazy Guggenheim was or what the reference was. And we listened to it. We were just like dying of laughter going, what the hell is this? And nobody would explain it to us. I'd ask my parents, they go, I don't really remember. I, I, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that is a thing is that like every comedy album is kind of like a, like a time capsule that it encompasses like the culture of that time um and, and and the references and all of that so it doesn't have to be ban 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 all of the kennedy stuff it you know it could just be chris rock and how he looked at something at a certain time so it's very interesting in that way it's funny because we will i mean it's we'll share comedians i, I don't know how many people we don't have their water cooler anymore, of course, but people will stand around the office and they'll imitate comedians or talk about comedians. We share that. And it's this, it is kind of a weird time capsule because we'll like, I think now nobody would know what John and Marsha were, but back then people were like, John, Marsha, John, Marsha. And everybody was doing that bit. And it really does infect, it gets under our skin so much. Well, Nina, I wanted to thank you for being on the um, show. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. And I 
want to mention that your book is coming out on Valentine's Day, February 14th. It's going to be right out and uh, will it be available on Amazon ahead of time? Yeah, it's actually on there now and it's already getting pre-ordered. There's already been a, a couple of orders for it. So yeah, people can find it there, pre-order it, but you know, go to your favorite independent book bookstore. And this is with History Press and they have racks of books at CVS. So maybe staring at you as you buy condoms. I don't know. We'll see. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I, I like that imagery. If I ever see that, I will take a picture of that and put it on yeah. Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. And also they can uh, purchase your first books that are interrupted online as well. And, and uh, I will put your website information in the bio so they can uh, catch you at one of your comedy acts. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Dean. Always Thank good you. to work with you. That was author and comedian Nina G. She's um, here talking about her book, Bay Area Stand-Up Comedy. That'll be out um, to be purchased on February Valentine's Day. Um, you can purchase it also in advance on Amazon as well. Uh, you can also pick up her book, um, Stutter Interrupted, as well. It's a really great book, a biography about her life as a comedian. Um, also, you, we're going to post Nina's website on the bio link. You can uh, read her bio and look up her website. And you could also subscribe to check out her comedy shows. Um, she has listings on that that you can find out where she's playing and go see her. She's a great comedian, and you'd love to see her shows. Uh, she's always a hit, and I always love seeing her perform. Coming up on Friday, we're going to have food writer Catherine McBride. She'll be talking with us about her writing and her work as a chef. Um, and she also disclosed she was a local uh, chef at Chez Panis, so I was surprised to find that out. So that'll be on Friday, and then we're going to have on Monday... Michelle Tam from Nom Nom Paleo. She'll be with us on Monday. Uh, you probably know her from online. She has uh, many great books on paleo cooking out, and you'll really enjoy hearing that one as well. So look forward to having you listen to our podcast and the rest of the week. I hope you really have a great rest of your week, and until we hear from you again, happy cooking. Happy cooking.